Buzzard writes in, are you buying that Josh Gordon will be Josh Gordon again? Well, yeah, absolutely. Why not? He's only 24 years old. At age 22, Josh Gordon posted 87 receptions for 1,646 yards and nine touchdowns with some mix of Jason Campbell, Brian Hoyer, and Brandon Whedon as his quarterback in 14 games. So yes, yes, that is a player I'm very interested in. Yes, yes. But I know that also he was crushed by addiction in his early 20s. And by all accounts, all indications are that he's cleaned himself up. Josh Gordon has only said and only done the right things since the last time he got in trouble a year ago. He had a series of incidents and then he cleaned up his act. When I think about Josh Gordon, his situation, that's how I would characterize it. And then he has a teammate, Johnny Manziel, which helps put things in perspective. You put Josh Gordon next to Johnny Manziel, and Josh Gordon looks like a Trappist monk. I mean, Josh Gordon isn't even close to being the craziest addict on the Browns. And a year ago, Josh Gordon was known to be the craziest addict that we've seen in the NFL for quite some time. And now what Johnny Manziel is doing has completely eclipsed our worst memories of Josh Gordon. It's pretty amazing when you think about what Johnny Manziel has done as an accomplishment, blotting out the sun with his antics, making us totally forget what Josh Gordon, the trouble that Josh Gordon got into not long ago. It's amazing. I mean, think about what Johnny Manziel did just in the last week. There was a video circulating of Johnny Manziel in Las Vegas in disguise. A blonde wig, a blonde mustache. He thought that that was a good disguise. He thought that was going to work. That's right. Johnny Manziel flew out to Vegas on a Saturday, which is why he missed a scheduled concussion test on Sunday. Why? Because he wasn't in the state. He was in Las Vegas, passed out on a hotel floor when everyone was arriving at the Browns facility looking around going, oh, where's Johnny? Oh, if you only knew where Johnny was at this very moment. My favorite part of this latest Johnny Manziel scandal is that in order to cover his tracks, Johnny Manziel geotagged a picture of himself on Instagram of him lying on his apartment floor playing with his dog on Saturday night. I mean, just over the top. It couldn't have been just him with friends. No, no, it was that wasn't good enough. It couldn't have just have been him maybe taking a picture of his food. You know how people do that on Instagram all the time? Take a picture of my spaghetti and meatballs. But oh, there's a I put some pesto in there to to add some flair. Oh, let me take a picture of that because everyone cares about my spaghetti and meatball dinner. No one actually cares about my spaghetti and meatball dinner. But he could have tagged any picture on Instagram on Saturday night. But what did he do? He went to the furthest extent of cute, cuddly, innocuous me playing on the carpet with my dogs. This guy, he is so transparent that it's hilarious. He doesn't know he's being transparent. He doesn't know he's being obvious. He thought that the costume would work. I, I guarantee he thought this. Johnny Manziel looked in the mirror at this disguise and goes, yeah, I don't think anyone's going to recognize me. Ah, 
Oh, I geotagged that picture of me still in Ohio playing in the living room with my dogs. Oh, this is going to work. This is a great plan. I'm glad I thought of it. Eh, it didn't work. Imagine if that was Josh Gordon. Imagine if after Josh Gordon had been in trouble a couple times, pulled over for DUI, possession of marijuana, we know the Josh Gordon resume of drug busts and failed drug tests. But if Josh Gordon was going out of his way to conceal his addiction and using these over-the-top shenanigans, somehow with little Johnny Manziel, he's just getting it out of his system. It's cute. I have a hard time believing it would have been viewed, perceived as cute if it were Josh Gordon. I mean, Johnny Manziel, I mean, the level of thought and planning that goes into his partying is astounding. Johnny Manziel is a premeditated partier of the highest order. I mean, if there was some club for partiers, I mean, Johnny Manziel would be a grand master of the order of premeditated partiers. He would have a scepter. He would have a special cape. He would have a whole headdress on at the secret meetings. The members would aspire to be Johnny because only Johnny Manziel parties like Johnny Manziel. It's amazing and hilarious. Just great. I never want him to leave the league. Please, Johnny, don't go anywhere. I love you, man. You just have to respect someone having the balls to try to pull off that kind of caper and then do it in such a transparent, cliche way. Playing with dogs on your carpet it's just amazing. I don't know why I thought that picture on Instagram was so great. God, he just doesn't care. Cleveland Browns management. Fuck you. Signed Johnny Manziel and his dogs. Amazing. Browns management. The Browns have a new member of their management team, Paul DePodesta, the analytics guy from baseball. He worked under Billy Bean, and in the book by Michael Lewis, Moneyball, he was one of the main figures. And the Browns hired him. I think it's a great hire. Anytime you can hire a smart guy who's a numbers guy, a guy who emphasizes using analytics to help drive decision-making, anytime you can do that, it doesn't matter what his level of expertise, what his field is, anytime you can bring on smart people whose brains are wired to use numbers and analytics to help make decisions, I believe that is almost always a good decision for that organization. It doesn't matter what organization it is. It could be a pharmaceutical company. It could be a government organization. It could be a sports team. It doesn't matter. But then you read this on Twitter after the Paul D. Podesta hire was announced. It's only a matter of time before the Browns have the best pitching staff in the AFC North. Yes, because football is so hard to figure out. There's no one that comes from another sport that could ever think about learning the nuances of football. No, 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 it's so complicated. This is what we hear all the time with these coaches and their schemes. Members of the sports media, fans, they love to support this myth that the inner workings and the mechanics that go into orchestrating a football play, orchestrating a successful football drive, orchestrating a win, orchestrating a playoff berth. It's so complicated. It's crazy. There's only a handful of guys that are qualified and they've spent decades. They must, you must devote decades to the sport, learning the nuances, understanding all the technical aspects because Boy, whoa, it is complicated. You can't come in from another sport like baseball and pick up football. No, oh, that's ridiculous. You could never do that. So complicated.
So not complicated. Such a good hire by the Browns. But now I'm seeing someone who has been a football guy for a number of years. Jim Bob Cooter is now the new genius head coach in the National Football League. He's the new guy. That's right. Been around a long time. And now we can tie the success of a particular team or player back to Jim Bob Cooter being hired. And if we can do that, if there is a line of demarcation that we can see, if we can correlate Jim Bob Cooter being hired with player or team success, oh, there it is. There it is. The makings of a genius. That's right. The coach correlation trap is back this offseason. You knew it would be. The coach correlation trap's not going anywhere. It's going to resurface every offseason. It just caught me off guard that the latest correlation trap involves Jim Bob Cooter as the next football genius. You just can't make this up. You can't make up what Johnny Manziel is doing. And you can't make up this idea that Jim Bob Cooter is the NFL's next genius coach. And why is he the next genius coach? Well, because he fixed Matthew Stafford. <laughs> yeah, he fixed Matthew Stafford. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The unfixable Matthew Stafford. Yeah, Matthew Stafford's been in the league over five years with the same mechanics, the same flawed decision-making. But yeah, he'll, someone will come around and fix him eventually. Five more years, he'll be Jay Cutler. And someone eventually will be able to get through to Matthew Stafford. Just like eventually, someone got through to Jay Cutler. No one ever got through to Jay Cutler. And no one is ever going to get through to Matthew Stafford and make him an efficient quarterback. It's never going to happen. But what Jim Bob Cooter did was he was hired as the Lions offensive coordinator at the exact right time when expectations were at their lowest. And that's the makings of a correlation trap. Because there's a difference between causation and correlation. Correlation does not always imply causation. Sure, the Lions offense became much more efficient after Jim Bob Cooter was hired. But was Jim Bob Cooter the direct cause of the improved efficiency? The answer is no! What changed other than Jim Bob Cooter being the offensive coordinator, not Joe Lombardi? Another big change was the schedule! Maybe that was the reason, maybe that was the cause. Because before Jim Bob Cooter became the offensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, the Detroit Lions faced San Diego, Minnesota, Denver, Seattle, Arizona, Minnesota again. Now, after Jim Bob Cooter is hired, the Lions face Oakland, Philadelphia, New Orleans, San Francisco. And the majority of Detroit's home games were scheduled for the second half of the season. So Jim Bob Cooter got to face softer pass defenses at home as opposed to Joe Lombardi, who was going on the road oftentimes to Seattle. Good luck with that one. Well, he didn't have good luck. That's what happened to Joe Lombardi. He went to Seattle. He didn't have good luck in Seattle, and he was fired. But it was amazing how Matthew Stafford turned his season around. What did he do differently? It must have been the play calling. It must have been the teaching of Jim Bob Cooter. Unlocked Matthew Stafford's potential. It wasn't the schedule. No, 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 no. Buzzard writes in, do you like Jalen Strong? I do like Jalen Strong. And I was encouraged that Houston started to give Jalen Strong starter snaps in the final couple games of the season. In a vacuum in particular, I love Jalen Strong as a standalone fantasy asset. 
However, the problem with Jalen Strong is Jalen Strong is a member of the Houston Texans. And what we learned this past season is while a below average quarterback can support a fantasy relevant wide receiver and beyond that can support a full-blown WR1 in fantasy. DeAndre Hopkins became a top five wide receiver despite Brian Hoyer. Allen Robinson was a top 10 wide receiver despite Blake Bortles. But the number two receivers on teams with inefficient pass offenses, subpar quarterback play, it's the number two receiver that suffers the most. The number one receiver is still the target hog. And they can still convert catches because they're so good, because they're the number one receiver, because they're Allen Robinson, because they're DeAndre Hopkins, because they're fantastic talents. They can convert catches off of bad throws. But the number two receiver oftentimes is less equipped to convert a catch from a bad throw, number one. And number two, typically the less efficient offenses don't have the volume. In the first half of the season, for whatever reason, the Houston Texans skewed incredibly pass-heavy, and then they became more balanced in the second half of the season. DeAndre Hopkins' numbers were degraded in the second half of the season, but not by a significant margin. But Cecil Shorts and Nate Washington, their numbers crashed to earth in the second half of the season as the volume dissipated. So if you have average volume with a below average quarterback efficiency, it is very rare that the number two receiver in that circumstance can be fantasy relevant. That's why next season I am terrified of Alan Hearns in case Blake Bortles takes a step back. Alan Hearns will be the one who suffers most, not Alan Robinson. I'm terrified of Jalen Strong as the number two receiver behind DeAndre Hopkins with Brian Hoyer, who I don't believe is an above average quarterback. I'm terrified of Travis Benjamin because of the presence of Josh Gordon. Travis Benjamin will be relegated to the number two receiver position and they don't have a quarterback in Cleveland. So from a dynasty perspective, I'm terrified of Travis Benjamin. I'm also terrified of Emmanuel Sanders for the same reasons. Who's going to be the quarterback in Denver? They're all bad options. A 40-year-old Peyton Manning who already has proven at 39 years old that he has no arm strength left? Brock Osweiler, the rare 6'8 checkdown quarterback? I know he's 6'7". I know. I know he's 6'7". It's just a joke. And it's one of the reasons I'm worried about Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry was already inefficient according to efficiency metrics like yards per target and production premium on playerprofiler.com, our situation agnostic efficiency metric. On a per target basis, Jarvis Landry was less productive than other receivers in the league. So now you take a player who, while he did have a good catch rate on a per target basis because his yards per reception and yards per target were below average, he already is considered inefficient. Now, if you project forward next year, Ryan Tannehill is a below average quarterback. I know there might be some Ryan Tannehill truthers out there still. People still holding on to the idea that Ryan Tannehill will ascend because he looks like a television quarterback. Ryan Tannehill looks like he just stepped off the set of Friday Night Lights. And if you're still projecting Ryan Tannehill based on your vision of the quarterback archetype that he fits so nice and neatly with, then maybe you're holding on to this idea that Ryan Tannehill will be an above-average quarterback next year and be able to support both Devontae Parker and Jarvis Landry in fantasy. I don't believe that will be the case. I believe next year Ryan Tannehill will be more exposed than he was this year as a fearful game manager. And once Ryan Tannehill is re-exposed, 
I say re-exposed because he was already exposed this year as a fearful game manager. Not a game manager who likes to take shots when they're presented. Just checks down and dumps off out of fear. That is a driving force behind Ryan Tannehill's play. Because I believe that's who Ryan Tannehill is. I believe Ryan Tannehill can only support one fantasy-relevant wide receiver. And I still believe that Devontae Parker is the future number one for Miami. And his full ascension could happen as early as 2016. And where does that leave Jarvis Landry? The answer is, I don't know. And that's why I'm worried. I'm worried about Alan Hearns. I'm worried about Jalen Strong. I'm worried about Travis Benjamin. I'm worried about Emmanuel Sanders. And I'm worried about Jarvis Landry. The number one receivers, I'm not as worried about. Oh, Jarvis Landry's the number one receiver. Jarvis Landry's not a number one receiver. In no way, shape, or form is Jarvis Landry a number one receiver. He doesn't have the efficiency numbers of a number one receiver. He doesn't have the athleticism of a number one receiver. He doesn't have the route inventory of a number one receiver. He is a slot receiver. Just like Jordan Matthews is not a slot receiver, even though people think he is a slot receiver, Jarvis Landry is a slot receiver, even though people don't think of him as a slot receiver for some asinine reason. The guy I'm most terrified of is Martavis Bryant. And it's not because Ben Roethlisberger is a below-average quarterback. I'm concerned about Martavis Bryant for a different reason than the quarterback not being able to support him as fantasy relevant. I'm concerned about Martavis Bryant because... He took a clear step back in 2015, and that should be a concern for everyone. In 2014, we extrapolated Martavis Bryant based on league-leading efficiency. He had a plus 49.2 production premium in 2014, which was number one in the league. Plus 49.5% target premium, 11.4 yards per target, 2.71 fantasy points per target. He was number one, number three, number two, number one across the board. All those efficiency metrics last season, 2014. Then this past season or this season, however we want to think about it, because the playoffs are still going on, his efficiency crashed across those metrics. His production premium was number 40 in the league. Target premium, number 38. Yards per target, number 31. And fantasy points per target, number 26. So he went from top five in all those metrics to outside the top 25 in all of those metrics. However, one thing remained the same. Across 2014, spanning 2015, one efficiency metric remained consistent. That metric, catch rate. This year, Martavis Bryant's catch rate was 55.1, 74th in the league. Last year, Martavis Bryant's catch rate, 54.2%, 79th in the league. Almost identical. That's who Martavis Bryant is. He's not good at catching the football. We've talked about this with Leonard Hankerson, Ted Ginn, explosive athletic playmakers, deep threats that aren't good at securing the football with their hands. This is something that Martavis Bryant is not good at. It's something Ted Ginn is not good at. It's something that Leonard Hankerson is not good at. And yet, instead of thinking of Martavis Bryant as a fringe wide receiver, the way we think of Ted Ginn and Leonard Hankerson as fringe wide receivers, Martavis Bryant is still talked about as a future superstar at the NFL level, a top 20 dynasty wide receiver. And I just don't see it. You don't see perennial all pros. You don't see perennial WR1s in fantasy with below 60% catch rates because eventually the quarterback just stops throwing the ball to that receiver because he knows there's only a 50-50 chance the wide receiver is going to catch it. 
So he stops throwing it to him. And then it becomes a negative feedback loop. Then the receiver starts receiving less targets. He starts pressing more. He starts thinking about it more. His drop rate goes up. And that's what happened this year. Martavis Bryant's drop rate went up from last year. The drop metric is not something I pay close attention to. But when you are looking at catch rate, if it is also buttressed by a high drop rate, then you know that the catch rate was mostly on the receiver. Sometimes, especially when you're talking about low sample sizes, Martavis Bryant only played half the season last year. Martavis Bryant missed a significant portion of the season this year. And Martavis Bryant only played in 10 games. He only played in 73% of the snaps this year. So when you have a smaller sample size, it's more likely that the catch rate isn't entirely the fault of the receiver, that the targets that receiver received just happened to be inaccurate. That's possible. It's certainly possible that that was the case. But now we have a bigger sample size. Now it's not just one partial season. Now we have the equivalent of a season and a half of game data to look at. And now we also have drops providing further evidence that Martavis Bryant's catch rate is on him. It's not on Ben Roethlisberger. And if I'm an owner of Martavis Bryant in Dynasty, I am terrified about what the future holds. Now, the guy that's causing the most fear among Dynasty owners right now is Calvin Johnson, because Calvin Johnson said recently that he's mulling retirement. He talked to his mom, aww, and said that he's just not sure he wants to play football anymore. That's what we heard. That's what was reported. And I don't know why that's being reported. Because I feel like every player that didn't make the playoffs is having a conversation with his mother saying, I'm demoralized. I'm just not sure this is for me. This is crushing. I need to take a look in the mirror. Isn't that most players? My body feels terrible. I feel broken. I'm demoralized, mom. Isn't that most conversations that players have with their parents after the season is over? Yet three days after the season is over, news outlets are running with the story that Calvin Johnson is mulling retirement because he's feeling demoralized after another failed season in which he ended the season suffering through multiple lower body injuries. Gee, you think he's demoralized? Gee, you think he's questioning his choice of profession in the face of failure and pain? Most of us would question our decisions. If you make a professional decision and it results in failure and pain, would you not question that decision? Of course you would. So maybe, just maybe, we should wait more than three days for Calvin Johnson's broken body to heal before asking Calvin Johnson about his future plans. Maybe we should give him a little more time. Maybe a month goes by and he starts feeling better and he starts feeling healed. And he starts feeling hungry. Maybe then we ask him what his future plans are. And then maybe we can get an answer that's closer to the truth. Not a reactionary, emotion-soaked response. Maddening to me. Yet everyone is talking about how worried they are about Calvin Johnson retiring. Give him some time. What are you worried about? Do you know what people say behind closed doors who play a dehumanizing, ultra-violent sport like football? I'm surprised half of the players don't ponder retirement after every game, given what their bodies are exposed to, the physical and mental anguish that they suffer every Sunday. I'm surprised so many of them can keep going and don't retire midseason. And I'm fully confident that Calvin Johnson 
will be back playing football this fall. Because, oh, by the way, he's owed $15 million. Maybe if he was owed a million dollars and he has $30 million in the bank, it's not worth it to put my health on the line again for another million dollars. That makes sense. I would understand that. $15 million? Get out of here. And then what if he comes back? Is he going to be a degraded form of his former self? Is Calvin Johnson done anyway in fantasy? Has he stopped being an elite receiver in fantasy? Yeah, I think Calvin Johnson is no longer a top five receiver in fantasy. I think that's fair to say. He wasn't a top five receiver in fantasy this year. He was top 20, but he wasn't top five. In 2014, he was top 10, but he wasn't top five. So if he's not top five in 2014 and he's not top five in 2015, no, I don't think Calvin Johnson is going to be top five in 2016. But I think we learned this year that there is no such thing as the 31-year-old big wide receiver productivity cliff that if you're tall and you're 31 years old that you're destined to fall off a cliff at age 31 that your productivity will dive that myth was debunked by Brandon Marshall and Larry Fitzgerald this year hallelujah but I still think Calvin Johnson has at least two or three fantasy seasons left where he'll be a fantasy WR2, which actually I think makes him a great buy in Dynasty now because the narrative is Calvin Johnson's done, Calvin Johnson's a shell of his former self, yet I still believe he has two or three productive fantasy seasons left in him, and that actually could make him a buy this offseason. Think about what Calvin Johnson has done in his career. Calvin Johnson has a... 1,900-yard season on his resume. Calvin Johnson has four 12-touchdown seasons on his resume. Calvin Johnson is the most athletic wide receiver in the history of the sport. A size-speed specimen like we've never seen. The closest thing the NFL has or has ever had to LeBron James. And if that player is available to me at a discount at age 30... Yes, I'm acquiring that player. Thank you. But even though the arbitrary threshold of 31 years old and the arbitrary threshold of 6'3 or taller, that those wide receivers are destined to fall off a cliff, these arbitrary rules of thumb, you don't want to draft a 31-year-old tall receiver. No, no, no. They always experience a huge productivity decline at that age. Uh, Unless it's Larry Fitzgerald. Uh, Unless it's Brandon Marshall. So that's been debunked, thankfully. However, I do believe small receivers do age better than large receivers. I love Antonio Brown, for example, in Dynasty specifically for two reasons. Number one, he has a compact body. Number two, he proved with his first contract extension that he isn't treating the big contract as a destination. And on top of that, Antonio Brown has another big contract on the horizon. So those are the two main reasons I really love Antonio Brown in Dynasty. So for example, I would draft Antonio Brown over Julio Jones in Dynasty, specifically because small receivers age better. It's just intuitive. The less pounds you have on your body, the less pounding that your joints and your connective tissue experiences over time. That's one of the reasons why Steve Smith has been able to stay in the league well into his mid-30s and continue to be a fantasy producer because he has one of those compact bodies. It's just very rare that you will see a big, tall receiver productive out to age 36. All the wide receivers age gradually. 
It's just that the curve for the larger receivers is a bit steeper. But there is no arbitrary end point for when big receivers stop being productive. That's what I object to, these arbitrary endpoints. I love the contract that Antonio Brown signed a few years ago. He's scheduled on average to make only $8.5 million over the next two years through 2017. So there's no worries that Antonio Brown has already reached his destination, even monetarily. Because we've seen other wide receivers treat their big contract as a destination. I think Demarius Thomas is the best example. His efficiency cratered in 2015. And one of the reasons why, I believe, is that Demarius Thomas treated his huge contract extension, his one big mammoth contract that he signed in the offseason, as a destination. Watching Demarius Thomas play, sometimes half-heartedly, looking out of shape, you couldn't help but think, wow, it seems this player treated his big mammoth contract extension as a destination, unlike Antonio Brown. That is a real danger, especially in the sport of football. It's less of a danger in basketball and baseball because those sports hurt a lot less. It takes less to get up to play those sports. It takes a lot to get up to play the sport of football. That's why Calvin Johnson is mulling retirement right now with his mother. He's not going to retire, but the sport hurts. That's why he's mulling. The sport hurts. That's why Demarius Thomas couldn't bring himself to play with the same level of intensity and have the same off-season work ethic that he had previously. It's not an indictment of the player. I think it's just human nature. When the players don't have that disposition, when the players, despite signing the big contracts, continue to exhibit the same level of intensity and have the same work ethic, that to me is the exception. That to me is something that should be celebrated as rare and impressive. Now, we had a listener, Jason Treat, write what is essentially a mini three-act play for what he envisioned this show would be today. And I want to read it on the air because it was just one of the great buzzard messages we've ever received. So here's how it goes. Act 1. Manchin teases an efficient, comprehensive year-in-review podcast only to go completely off the show sheet for 30 minutes talking about Turkish hackers ruining the launch of johnsonrankings.com, Mike Tomlin being the last coach not to be replaced by a win probability robot on account of his good looks, and the issuance of a fatwa by the church of Janus Christ of Latter-day Combine Destroyers against slow drafts. Act 2. Sounds of forced entry and shattered glass in another room. Manchin whispers to his audience that he thinks there's someone in the house. And anyone within the sound of my voice, in quotes, should send help. Curiously, no one comes. Sounds of fighting. Chair legs scraping across the floor. Straps being tied. Duct tape being ripped, etc. Manchin shouts become more muffled. Matt Friedman, the Oracle, takes over the show with someone else, unnamed intruder. They perform a standard fantasy broadcast, running down all of the Week 17 box scores. Oh, God. Enter Vivian Kelly, Act 3. She frees her father and bashes the intruder's heads in with a sock full of pennies, making them, in her words, go to sleep forever, in quotes. Vivian and Manchin spend the last five minutes of the show breaking down bubble guppies. 
That was awesome. That is one of my favorite buzzard messages of all time, and I wanted to read it on the show. It should be some kind of club, the buzzard club. Like Johnny Manziel has his premeditated partiers club, there should be a buzzard club, and Jason Treat would be one of the high priests in that organization. Also, I love how it was Matthew Friedman that took over the show. As I mentioned on the Football Die Hard show yesterday, how much I respect Matthew Friedman. The reason is as follows. There are guys out there that know more about football than me, and there's a lot of guys out there that are more clever than I am. But no one is both. Except Matthew Friedman. Thank you.